Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and in the second programme in our series on sustainable food production, the team and I have come out of the studio into the verdant landscape of Surrey to Hampton Estate, where where we are the guests of Bill and Bridget Bidell, whose family have been farmers here since 1926. And we're also joined by Shane Holland, Executive Chair of the Slow Food Network UK. Thank you for having us and welcome to Planet Pod. Thank you. Thank you. So The Economist magazine announced at the beginning of this year that 2019 was going to be the year of the vegan. Um, And giant meat-producing organisations and fast food chains such as McDonald's are now selling um, vegan burgers and Beyond Meat is producing something called a beetroot burger that oozes blood-like juices. Worrying thought. Um, With the increase in plant-based diets, with plant-based meals hitting our supermarket shelves and the high levels of carbon emissions associated with much of meat production... Is the tide turning against rearing animals to eat? So, how are we going to pick our way through this complex subject? Perhaps the best place to start is from the ground up. So let's talk about the soil and the landscape. Bill, you're a farmer here, you have a large estate, and you've been here for many years. Have things changed over the last few years? Have you noticed a decline in the number of insects? Have you noticed the biodiversity of the farm changing? And has that affected the way that you farm the Hampton Estate generally? The biodiversity has definitely changed over the time, but that's through the farming systems that we're employing rather than naturally happening. So it's our management of them in whatever sense that is. And for us, that means we're looking at better pastures, better grasses, more more of a natural way of farming than what we would be doing 20 or 30 years ago, where we were looking at grass production per se, to create silage to put into our dairy cows. We're now going for a much more natural way of breeding and looking after our beef cows. So really you're turning the tide against the things that we've been hearing generally about, you know, the loss of of habitat and the fact that, you know, we're turning kind of a lot of our fields into a desert and these worrying statistics about the life of the soil that we have left in the UK for food production. The way you farm here is kind of reversing some of that trend. It's trying to, and I think it's our realisation that we've got a greater asset in our soil and that we should be looking down below the soil and into the soil rather than just seeing what's growing up above it. And I think that is the way forward for many, many farmers. So you've moved away from dairy and you had a, you know, dairy cows and you yeah. were milking. You've moved into beef production. How is, that, how is that transforming the landscape then? How are you actually doing that, creating a better a soil and soil quality? First of all, we're we're compartmentalising our fields and we only let the cows graze in them for a certain time, so three or four days, rather than ranching them. And that means that they are eating the grass in in a slightly different way and we find that they leave more behind and we want them to do that. In order that they move on to the next section, they leave behind grass that will then send its seeds back into the ground, which will give us more grass uh, in a much better way. 
So they're actually acting as sort of natural grasp management for you. In in terms of- yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what we're hoping them to, what, what we'd like them to do. It's, it seems a much more sensible way of, for us in a fairly small system of beef cows, we haven't got hundreds and hundreds of them, um, for them to actually be working the soil for us rather than for us to be putting artificial fertilisers onto the soil for them. And you've seen a, not- a noticeable change in the number of insects and wildflowers and, and general kind of habitat diversity. I think that's absolutely right, yeah, throughout the whole farm actually. And that's uh, as we've gone away from commodities and we've looked more at better ways of using our pastures. But yeah, I think it's also a balance and I, you, you, we can never get it entirely right, but we're being much more natural with what we do. But I mean, I spe- and that's great to hear. And obviously, you know, we're going to go out and, and see the cows and the um, and the landscape in a moment. But there is an issue, isn't there, about the rising level of, of meat consumption and a lot of people who are concerned about carbon emissions and uh, climate change and the warming of the planet are saying to us we should be eating less meat. Um, cows produce a lot of methane; they're really bad in terms of carbon carbon production. Um, how can we how can we reconcile that? How can we tackle that, Sean? I mean, because you know, obviously, we, people don't want to give up meat. They probably don't want to eat beetroot burgers all that often. Mm-hmm. So, so where are the, where's the balance to be struck on this? I'd implore you not to eat those beetroot burgers. Actually, you know, they've got about seventeen different ingredients, and they're not particularly good for you either. Um, I, I think the issue around um, carbon and cows is that some cows do produce a lot of carbon. Um, but many cows don't if they're in a regenerative system like we've got here, and um, I know we're going to go out and see the cattle. Um, that system is actually carbon sequestering. So it is a very, very different system to the kind of feedlot system um, which they employ in the US and in lots of other places. Um, and that's where a lot of the data has come from around emissions. We've had far less data here in, um, in UK and northern European systems. But where we do have data on that, um, where cattle are on pasture... Um, in drainage systems, that sequesters carbon. And I'm sure when we go out and see the pasture, we're going to, to see that pasture um, building um, where, there's, where there is cattle. I think the other thing we need to be really careful about is about demonising particular foods. Um, and actually what we really need to be looking at is really highly processed foods. So if we are seeing individuals switching out of eating beef for environmental reasons and they switch out of beef from a great place like this, um, and switch into a soya product, a Beyond Burger or similar, then actually almost certainly the emissions will be higher. About 25% of all of the rainforest that's been cut down in Brazil at the moment for soil production um, is going into human food. Um, so 75% is using for animal feed. We shouldn't be using that for animal feed either. Um, but just because most of it is going into animal feed does not excuse the fact that we're cutting down vast amounts of rainforest for, for human consumption as well. Um, that is entirely um, a waste of forest. It is, you know, the, probably the greatest green lungs that we have on the planet. Um, and then that is then exported, highly processed, put with other um, um, chemicals, additives and so forth, which we've already touched on, is really bad for our guts. Um, I want to see us not really talking about veganism or meat-eating, but actually go to a non-processed diet. Um, and if we do that, I think we'll all live a much happier, much healthier life. Um, we probably need to eat less meat overall, um, if we look at you know the average person, but eat much better quality meat, eat meat from systems like this. Um, and instead of necessarily aiming for a plant-based diet, have days when they just happen to be plant-based, um, rather than buying lots and lots of ready meals, which is what we're now seeing the growth in the supermarkets, 
um, and are switching out of highly processed meat products into highly processed plant products. They're no better for the planet, they're no better for us. And obviously your, your beef and cattle are not processed, are they, in any sense? I not mean, in, no, not in any sense. No, they are the least processed I think we can find. <laughs> <laughs> and they're probably not necessarily an everyday item in terms of our kind of food intake, are they? I mean, you wouldn't necessarily no. eat the quality I of think, the meat. No, I think more people are eating meat um, for a special, special event. You know, not everybody has a Sunday roast, but a lot of people will come to us and say, oh, we've got a party coming up and we'd love to buy from you a sirloin or we'd like this or that. And what we are finding is that a number of families will say, we will only eat Hampton beef, and it tastes so different to other beef, and other super, especially supermarket beef. And by definition, they're not going to be doing that every day, because you have a limited amount, because you are, you know, yeah, your own exactly. words, you're relatively small scale in terms of numbers of production and amount of, of beef that's coming out of the farm. Totally. Yeah, we're very niche. And we're very happy to be niche because then we can we, we know our customers really well, which is great. It's word of mouth, it's local, it's community-based. And I think that gives us a much greater sense of ownership and, and worth, which is lovely for an estate. And this is a huge estate. So those, you know, that small herd that you have, relatively small herd, um, that can't be the only means of keeping the estate going. So have you diversified across so the So we have actually, in, in no great clever way, it's just happened. We're very fortunate. We Living in the middle of Surrey, we've got buildings. Lots of people want to use those buildings with us. So we've got offices, we've got a craft centre, we've got industrial units. Um, we do a lot of forestry. We rent out a, car, a farm that we irrigate and that goes to specialist uh, potatoes and herbs. So we've got a whole gamut of different things going on, and we're able to we're able to tap into lots of different sources. That must make managing the estate more complex, but perhaps possibly a bit more fun than just having fields and fields of wheat. Yeah. <laughs> Entirely, it really is. Yeah, I mean, we never know quite what's going to happen, and it it certainly adds all the time. So I I would say I spend probably twenty percent of my time farming, probably eighty percent doing everything else making sure that we're in the right place for a film location or we have got our offices let or our cottages are up together and all those different bits and pieces. But I think it's, it's a, actually it's a product of being a single little landmass in the middle of Surrey and there are lots of pressures on open space and everybody wants to do things with us, which is great, but they do, we do have to manage it in a, in a fairly hands-off way but in a positive way. Yeah. And you've got some common land as well, haven't you, over some open land. access? Yeah, which is a great asset. And no one would know it belongs to the estate, but lots and lots of people bring their dogs, they walk and they run, and everything happens up there, which is fantastic. And do you feel that's the way that farming is generally going? We're getting away from those huge sort of agri-barren, big fields of wheat, and we're moving into much more diverse, I, smaller, more balanced communities? I, I think it all depends on the land that you farm. Underneath it all, it depends what you've got. We are in Surrey, we have sandy land. It's no good to a barley baron. So he wouldn't want to come and farm here. We've got little fields that go up and down, great topography, and lots and lots of woodland. We've got more trees in Surrey than any other county because of the poor nature of the soil. So that works really, really well for us. Um, we're very lucky we've got buildings, we can utilise them. I think if we were, if we were um, in in Suffolk or in Norfolk on really good ground 
we should be using that for wheat and for barley and for arable crops that work really, really well. Um, it would be crazy not to. You wouldn't go and plant trees on some really good ground that could double crop. So I think it's horses for courses and it's balance. Yeah. I think balance is key, isn't it? And balance is key when we talk about food production, when we talk about food consumption and you know, the whole idea of sustainable food is not just making sure that the food production itself is sustainable, it's about making sure that we've cut waste out of the system. Yep. So that's our responsibility as consumers, to be consuming a bit less, to be consuming more responsibly, and actually ensuring that we're not wasting, you know, both food that we've purchased. And I should imagine a lot of those ready meals that we were talking about end up in the bin. Because, because, you know, you buy one, you get one free, and you don't need it, and, you know... and. So actually, so it's really about trying to build that sustainability back into the, the supply chain and into our habits. Yep. Shane, can I ask you to just describe a little bit about what's prompted the slow food movement and what that would look like for the average consumer? I mean, what do we mean when we talk about slow food? Um, slow food was founded 33 years ago in Italy, um, and we're now the world's largest food organisation. And we do very different things in different countries. So here in the UK, we're really um, focused on explaining what farmers do and why that matters, um, how consumers can make a difference, um, and around food education. And the food education is happening actually on the ground in schools, isn't it? Yes, so we work in over 300 schools. Um, So we teach young people um, to cook. Um, We take food that's grown in their gardens and actually cook with it. Um, We also teach them beekeeping, um, traditional craft skills, I'm going to talk about why food and farming is actually a really good career, because many of us aren't given that option. Um, We also run community cooking sessions, so we go into things like housing estates um, and teach people basic food skills. Um, We say we run beekeeping for young offenders, so the whole gauntlet of things that we do. And for many people, I mean, they'd like to say, well, I'd love to have slow food. I'd love to have, you know, the kind of beef that Bill's raising here at Hamptons, But, but it's just beyond my price range. And so is slow food something of a kind of, you know, middle-class indulgence? Not at all, because actually what slow food's standing for is the kind of food that we all would have eaten 50 years ago, the kind of food that our grandmothers ate or our grandparents ate, and maybe we also ate when we were little, is slow food. Um, We can't all eat prime cuts. We can't all eat fillet steak every day, and nor should we be. Um, There's an argument to say we should be eating as much meat as perhaps we do eat now anyway. Um, but we should be eating much better quality meat. So spend that food budget on some of the great beef that we've seen here today um, and to eat more vegetables. But also we've never um, spent so little on food. So there's a myth to say that most of us are spending a lot of money on food. Um, And each year um, there are lots of surveys done by the government um, on perceptions of of value. Um, And each year we all believe we're spending more money on food. And actually that's not true. Um, for most of us, we've never spent so little on food. In fact, for the average family, they spend more money on going out than they do on eating at home. Um, so it's how we allocate that resource. Um, do we want to be eating a really, really um, good value pizza at £10 for two on a Saturday night, which sounds a really good value? Or do we want to buy an entire chicken which can feed us for four nights? So it's about perception of value as much as anything else as well. And it isn't obviously just about about meat. It's also about, you know, other crops and things as Absolutely. well, isn't it? Yep. And, and perhaps, you know, that relationship that we have with food is changing. And, and, and there is a direct link, isn't there, between, um, you know, how many, how many cookery books we're, we're, we're buying and how, much cookery, how many cookery programmes we're watching on television and actually how little cooking we're actually doing as families together. Absolutely. So the ONS said that last year the average family spent five hours of reading um, cookery books, watching food on television and tweeting about food, and only four hours actually cooking um, food. So we spend an hour a week more as a typical household 
tweeting what we have for dinner than actually cooking it and eating it, which I think is quite astounding. Um, so food has become leisure, but actually making food perhaps isn't leisure, but watching it and watching someone else very much. And again, we spend huge amounts of money on going and eating out, and we all enjoy doing that. But again, if we were to think back even 20 years ago, perhaps we only went out occasionally, um, you know, maybe on payday weekend or for birthdays and so forth. Um, and now many of us um, across the country are eating out maybe once a week. Or I mean, buying ready meals. Or buying ready meals, yeah. And as, as we know, ready meals are, you know, largely very bad for the planet. You mm-hmm. know, there's a high level of crops and of, of uh, raw ingredients that have been thrown, uh, flown in. And yeah. obviously they've got a large carbon footprint. But there's also all of the disposable stuff that comes with it, the packaging and the plastic. And, and they don't represent very often good value for money, do they? They're really, really poor value for money. So even the ones that we think are really inexpensive, you know, the one ninety nine um, lasagnas or the um, or the pasta bakes, which are probably at the bottom end of those ready meals, are actually really expensive for portion, because most of those ready meals are only for one person, um, and the ones which claim to be for two are generally eaten by one person. So that in itself um, fuels obesity. Um, those that contain meat very often at that price point will be using um, chicken, which is coming from the Far East, or be using beef that's coming from South America. Um, and we could say, why does that matter? Well, it matters because many of those animals will be reared using antibiotics and other, and other enhancers, which would be illegal here in the UK. Um, and also it doesn't sustain the landscape. Um, those ready meals for the shelf life contain very large amount of emulsifiers and preservatives, and we now know that has a real impact on our gut fauna. Um, emulsifiers particularly interrupt um, our gut bacteria, um, and those preservatives, which are there to prevent moulds and other things um, spoiling, well, we have those naturally in our gut, and they help us to, to, um, to digest our food and to get those nutrients. So it's no surprise at all that these chemicals, which are designed to actually inhibit and kill bacteria and moulds, which then pass through our gut, have the same effect in our gut. Now, I'm not suggesting that eating a single ready meal um, is acting like a bactericide right through the gut, but they do have an effect. Um, And certainly the work that's been done by people like Professor Tim Spector around the Gut Project is saying people who consume foods with lots of these products in, or even just moderate amounts, have a profound effect um, on our levels of obesity, our levels of diabetes, um, and levels of other what we would call modern diseases. Um, and the reason they are modern diseases, most of these um, diseases and illnesses we're talking about have only been numerous for the last 30 years, is because our diet has fundamentally changed in the last 30 years. And the two are very, very much linked. And slow food, on, on that um, level of discussion, slow food is actually probably cheaper so if you're not buying that 199 pasta ready meal you can buy a whole bag of dried pasta for 60 to 70 pence can't you absolutely that's obviously why students eat so much of it um but obviously that's a you know slow food can be cheaper it can obviously be more nutritious for you it's just a question of us learning to understand and appreciate that and perhaps going back to some of those basic cookery skills absolutely we, we need to learn to shop more regularly and to also change what we eat through the seasons so you know we, we often hear about eating locally eating the seasons but actually they genuinely are ways of cutting our shopping basket costs. If we're wanting to eat asparagus in December or eat strawberries in December, one, they're very expensive, two, they're pretty tasteless. But if we buy those now, then they are far cheaper. Um, They will have far less of a carbon impact as well. Um, And they taste more delicious. And that's got to be a good thing. Definitely. Bill, I think we should go and see the cows. Let's go.
Bill, we're right in the middle of the field of cows. I'm surrounded by these beautiful creatures. Uh, what are they? Well, we've, we've got here the Hampton herd of pedigree Sussex cows. Um, they are pedigree beef. There are four-legged lawnmowers, and I think we call them the Land Rover of the cow world. <laughs> we're, we're looking here at roughly 40 cows and all their calves, and they're just in, enjoying a Monday afternoon in the sun in grass that we've just given them we've just moved them into this field and as you can see it's very patchy rather poor grass but Sussex love this kind of grass and they do very well on it so you're not having to feed them anything else they can survive just on what they can eat out here that's exactly they'll just eat grass and pasture and for us that's perfect we want a really simple way of farming cows and that's what they're doing they're just eating the grass that we put in front of them um, and then you know obviously you've got a, a, a livestock farm here you've got the all these cows are, are rearing calves for beef so so tell me about the process i mean obviously you've got 40 how would you have this number every year or so we try a, we, a flow through or how we're, does it work? we're trying to keep a, a good balance on the farm we found that with about this number of cows we're going to have 40 calves every year we keep them for varying uh, lengths of time so any one time on the farm we probably have 110 120 head of cattle uh, from all ages and that seems to keep the whole farm in equilibrium we're not having to buy food in we're not having to put lots of fertilizer on the grass it's a very simple simple system we can make enough hay ourselves to feed the cows in the winter we get a bit of straw from our arable farm to do to do the straw in the winter so it's a it's it all works and it's all in balance and that's what we that's what we really like and they're incredibly beautiful and very calm and we're right slap bang in the middle of this herd which, <laughs> and a lot of people are quite frightened by cows and actually if you said to them walk through a field of cows they go no thank you i'm going to go around the edge but but these ladies are very gentle yeah they are they are incredibly quiet and it's known for the sussex you know sussex trait is just being quiet and it makes handling them really easy really you know really simple um which is what we want and something something that's that's easy to do and in terms of their productivity i mean uh how how long would the average you know, female well, cow stay with you how long would you have a well our oldest is probably 16 years old and on the basis that she is providing us with a calf every year there's no reason to cull her at all and some of the some of the older cows actually have uh, are get better and better as being mums mm. We'll only cull if we really have to. We'll cull for um, for feet if they're getting if one of the two of them get bad feet, mm. or if something disastrous happens, like they put their foot down a rabbit hole and they start to you know break a hip or mm. just but but and, and for infertility. So if if they've been with a bull and they just have not got back in calf, then finally ah. we'll say that's the time we have to get rid of you, dear. Yeah. And actually, we've got the calves in the field at the moment with their mums. But you said to me a few moments ago, you're actually bringing the bull in this week. So, and the calves stay while that happens. Oh, totally. Yes, the the, the calves are very young at the moment. They were all born from middle of March onwards. So, the bull at the moment will have 40 cows to serve, and won't be interested in the calves at all. However, it is a logistical problem because by the time we get to sort of July, August, if we're not careful. The young female calves will almost be at the age where they could be served by the bull, which is what we don't want. Mm. So we have to take the bull out at that point. That's one of the reasons for taking the bull out. Okay, okay. So 
And the, but the bull will come in amongst these calves, even though the, these cows, even though these oh, cows are still if, feeding yeah. the calves. Oh, themselves. totally. And if we were standing here and the bull was here, we wouldn't even notice he was here. He just potters around the place, and it's quite hard to pick him up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't hardly know he was here. Well, I'm not surprised. He's got a lovely treat in store for him, hasn't he? <laughs> Great noises off. Thank yeah. you. Thank <laughs> you. Just what we wanted. And these lovely calves we can see, Bridget, they're going to be with you for some time, aren't they? So they've, they've got fairly long life ahead of them. Absolutely. We do a very, very slow beef rearing system because the cattle have the wonderful opportunity to be outside all year round because the ground is so dry. And so they, during the winter, they don't necessarily grow, but they maintain condition, which means that really it probably takes us sort of 28 to 30 months to get them fat which is perfect we, we're in no hurry and I think benefits benefits the meat and benefits is good nice wholesome system that really works well for us so it really is slow beef production yeah it, it absolutely is everything about it is <laughs> <laughs> the cattle are lovely and slow too but we, hopefully we can go and look at some of the cattle and enjoy seeing them down by the river yeah let's do that now Bill, we've come to a very different part of the estate now, away from, from, from the mothers and calves, and to a really what is, I suppose, a bit like a kind of water meadow, but more absolutely beautiful, lots of lovely long grass. And these beautiful cows we're looking at, are they're almost coming to the end of the, of the process with you now, aren't they? Yeah, this, this is our beef herd, very much beef. They're all boys. They're aged somewhere between 24 and 32 months. And we'll come and draw from these steers as we need cows for the for our beef production system and for our beef days. And we leave them down in this part because it is lovely uh, water meadow where we know the grass has grown well. And they have a whole range of herb and different grass varieties. And we hope that all adds to the flavour. Mm. And they've been having a bit of a paddle down there in the, in, in the, the low-lying bit of stream. <laughs> yeah. but, but Shane, this is a good moment, I suppose, to talk about um, you know, slow food on the hoof, really, isn't it? And from your perspective as you know, head of the slow food um, organisation, uh, is this kind of the epitome of slow food production? Absolutely. So we've got native breeds from the area here. And you know, our food and our landscape are really, really intertwined. So our landscape, it looks beautiful here, but it looks as it does because of food and farming. Um, and because we've had these native breeds, this kind of breed, um, you know, on this land for centuries. And that's really, really important. Um, and they naturally work here. So mm. they're easier to look after because they work with the land that's here. Um, and that makes it easier to farm. They stay in better condition. And ultimately, that leads to really good eating. Yeah. And we were talking earlier about the, you know, the the impact of raising cattle and the whole carbon debate. Mm-hmm. But but when you see them out here in the wild, it's hard to actually think of these as being <laughs> a carbon-heavy creature. I mean, I know there's the issue about methane, but obviously we've got all of this grass, haven't we, around us. So there must be quite a lot of carbon sequestration going on. There's a huge amount of carbon sequestration in um, systems like this. I think it's you know food and farming is really, really complex. And just as we have um, really industrialised food, we can have really industrialised farming systems as well. And when we have animals which are on um, grass like this, and we, we call this regenerative farming system, which is what we've got here, then what they're actually doing is they're having a good old 
still pull at the grass um, and that tugs at the roots and that strengthens the roots and makes the roots much um, longer they go down far deeper um, that's good in terms of also when we have um, little rain that the grass stays um, better with us but that actually also sequesters carbon because the animal's hooves then push on top of the grass pushes it back into the soil um, and that then stays there and forms extra topsoil the moment we remove animals from grass systems, actually we lose soil. And we know that, and the classic example is in the United States, the Great Dust Bowl. That had buffalo in it, several million buffalo. And the moment that we went and killed the buffalo, then what we had was these beautiful prairies, which would have probably looked not that different from what we're standing on now. All of that disappeared within a single generation. And why? Because we took um, ruminants off there. So ruminants are really, really important. They add to the soil um, and they keep soils there. And of course the soil is producing the most incredible biodiversity mm. in terms of, I mean, I'm looking down and I can see a whole raft of different colours in terms of the flowers, mm. the different types of grasses, you know, even the trees, the, the dead trees that have been left, which are providing a habitat for insects and for, for you know, for bird life. And so actually this is very important for just preserving our biodiversity. Absolutely. So we've got a whole, you know, a whole wildlife corridor here as well. So aside from having, you know, some really excellent beef, we're going to have flowers here for pollinators, which will then also go into other fields which will enhance crops um, we've got a whole ecosystem here and that's really really important and when we hear things such as well eating beef um, perhaps we should be eating far less of that for environmental reasons actually that kind of misses the point because again much of the research that we've got on um, emissions from cattle come from the US and actually though there are great people producing beef in the US in similar systems like that they're very much in the minority so much of US cattle um, is fed either corn or soya um, and then their emissions are substantially higher. They don't tend to be on grass systems. Where they are eating grass, they tend to be eating grass clippings or silage effectively. Um, many of them are kept in feedlots where they're literally either in mud or in concrete. So for those animals, yes, there is a carbon, you know, significant carbon emission. So we need to be really, really careful when we're talking about um, beef systems, about carbon, about what is it we're talking about. Are we talking about something wonderful that we're here in Surrey today, you know, on grass, where these animals are sequestered? Western carbon, so these are these are positive for the environment, or are we talking about beef which has been produced in a feedlot system, um, eating corn or eating soy on concrete, and those sadly are emitting carbon. Bill, that was wonderful. It was fantastic to see slow food on the hoof like that, especially when it had a paddle in the river. Thank you so much for having us. Um, we always like to close the pod with a kind of call to action. So would you and Bridget have a call to action for our listeners? Is there something you think people could do to really you know, change the way they feel about food or their relationship with the landscape? Or What would your call to action be? We were, we were thinking about this actually over lunch. And we thought, actually, number one would be to support your local farmer and find out about what he or she is doing and whether they are creating the kind of food that you want and then go and talk to them. Brilliant. We can all do that. And how about you, Shane? Words almost almost taken out of my mouth. Um, I'm going to ask you all to go and shop from people that you know the name of and that they know your name. Um, Not all of us can have direct relationships with farmers. If you you do know farmers or you can shop direct from a farmer, then please do. Otherwise, shop from farmer's markets or even a regular street market. But if they know your name and you know their name, 
you'll have a much better interaction, they're going to give you much better food, you're going to talk to them, and that's got to be good. Life is far too short to eat bad food. Thank you. I concur with that. Thank you both very much. Pleasure. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.